coming up on this episode of The Hive Life. I didn't want to be the jerk teacher that wrote a book and then made all the students buy it. I was like, I would like people that were in my classroom to enjoy the book. But what I want was for people that use accounting, whether it's a small business or at a large corporation to say, I wanted them to admit to themselves, I hate accounting. What's the bare minimum I need to know so I could at least use the accounting tools for decision-making? Welcome to The Hive Life, where we pull back the curtain on Spherical Media, a company based in Charlotte, North Carolina, with a team of former journalists that create beautiful, impactful stories that connect with your audience. Welcome to this episode of The Hive Life, coming at you from the south end of Charlotte. I'm Jared Latch, joined by Tim Bear. Our guest today is Cass Ward. Cass is a fellow entrepreneur. He also works with us as a chief financial officer. He's an author, teacher, and has stakes in various other companies. He's a, he's a man of many talents. So Cass, it's nice to have you as our guest today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Cass, we look at uh, some of your background, 20 years as a financial executive and, and business leader. Where or how did that all get started? Well, I, I've been an accountant for the past 20 plus years, you know, not, not to age myself, but I spent some time in corporate America and I just didn't fit that mold. When I went to go work for a smaller company, I, I really realized I liked being able to make decisions that had a big impact. For the longest time, I thought that in order to make an impact, it had to be a small company. You know, you hear all of these different types of cliches or analogies that, you know, it's a lot easier to turn a rowboat than it is a, a cruise ship and everything in between. But really, when it all comes down to it, business concepts are business concepts. Making sure your revenue is more than your expenses, it does not change to where you where you move to. So I had an opportunity after spending time with a smaller company to start my own smaller company. And from there, um, putting all those concepts to use, actually overnight the company was successful. It made its money back, it was profitable, it ran for quite a while. And I realized that I could do this for other companies regardless of what their size is, regardless of what industry they were in. It was just using the same general concepts. So it was a hard sell at first. And I would move from company to company. They're like, well, have you ever worked in manufacturing? No, but I know how business businesses run. And I would just lean back on my uh, accounting and strategy background to just build those plans and always to positive results. So we first came into contact with you after you finished your master's at Queens. You were with Clear Collar, company that you started. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of... Um, I think we jumped in there and helped tell that story a little bit with you. But what did you learn from your Clear Collar experience? So Clear Collar was my first experience with a startup where it wasn't my own money. I put some money into the company, but it was a group uh, that built the business plan that came out of the Queens University. And we went out and we needed to raise $2 million to run that company. And that was where you literally, in order to make your argument had to build the business case. We built a business plan that was built on marketing, operations, accounting, strategy, market analysis. I mean, everything that you would study in an MBA program. That's where I learned the value of entrepreneurship. 
entrepreneurship is such a, it's a word that's thrown around everywhere nowadays. Really, entrepreneurship is really the synonym for business. It's taking all of those business concepts and pulling them together and how accounting feeds marketing and marketing feeds accounting and operations and how you go all, how you put all those pieces together for any business. And in doing that is we went out to raise, raise money, which I got to tell you, that's a whole other story of how humiliating, how exhausting, how much energy goes into that, that we, we had to really truly learn before we were doing the business to explain exactly what day-to-day operations would look like and how we would implement our strategy. So as an entrepreneur, and we'll bring it up again, but it, it seems to me, and I was thinking about this earlier, that once you break the seal with your first company and you taste success, or even if it fails, but you, you got a glimpse of what success could look like, it would be really hard to do anything else. Would you agree? Yes. And, and it's, it, here's the other part is defining success. I've been a part of several different companies and clear collar of all of them was the one that I thought was the million dollar baby. Like, Hey, we're going to be a success. We're going to be, you know, I had a good chunk to lose on it. I also had a whole lot to gain if it worked out. And of all the companies I've been a part of, that was the only one that number one, didn't live up to its potential that did not become a success. And eventually, you know, it was diluted or the corporation was dissolved. We had a product, we tested the concept. The concept was successful, but the demand in the market for a better life-saving device just wasn't there. People in their purchasing habits were creatures of habit and they weren't looking for a better product or better standard of healthcare. They were looking for ease of access of what catalog they could buy out of. And how we executed that plan, extremely successful. We could not we could not impact those external factors. I'm really proud to this day of everybody that was on that team and, and the company and the investors and, and, and the love that was shown from it. But it was defining that that success is we did exactly what we said we were and it didn't work was okay. So you're an adjunct, adjunct professor at Queens. Um, you look to empower and entertain your students. Rather than what you're teaching them, what have you learned most from them? So, as a, and, and I use the word teacher with air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really just reiterating what's in the book. You know, the same books that I've read, I, I'm reiterating, like, here's the concept of break-even analysis. Here's the, here's the definition and process of budgeting. That takes me a few minutes. And in the classroom, especially in, in the master's program, I'll ask one question. Tell us what you're budgeting. Who's involved, number one, in your budgeting, their budgeting process? And tell me what that looks like. One student will go on for 20 minutes and tell you this long, convoluted process of how their company does it. And all of the pain comes out. Oh my gosh, you know, the, this line of managers is horrible. Nobody likes working with, you know, ops. They, they're out to get you. And it goes around and around. And what happens is you, you, instead of getting definitions, you start getting a picture of these concepts in real world situations. And things, then what happens is students, the other students in the class hear this and they're like, well, I'm not involved in the budgeting part of my company. But I see all this. I see these fights in meetings. I see all of these different things. And when people can understand where it fits in the puzzle, 
they may not even need to be involved to realize what is what their resources or what they're supposed to provide to that process is or what they're supposed to take away from it. So you talked about business concepts are business concepts and they just have, uh, I guess, a different area where you're applying them, whatever the company might be. What is your favorite part of you know, all those components mixed together in that process? Well, what I would say is my favorite part is the part that I've built my career on is the confusion and chaos. I work with a lot of companies that have all of those parts and they have the right people. It's being done really well and they cannot work together. They don't realize when it goes from sales to manufacturing or from sales to, you know, um, for a service company, if it's like out to the, the client facing, that there's so many disconnects that it, it frustrates everybody in the company. It frustrates the customer. Everybody's really well-versed in what they can do, but they're not talking to people in their own company about it. They're, uh, you know, marketing is not talking to operations. Everybody, I mean, the sales organization of any company, <laughs> the pressure's all there, you know? Hey, Jenny, how, mu how much money are you going to bring in this year? Oh, a million dollars. Well, we need you to bring 1.5 in if we're going to stay alive and well, they don't even know if they can produce $1.5 million worth of work, let alone if she's, you know, successful in selling it because they're not talking to those pieces. So my favorite part of those concepts is just tying them together. And we're not talking like this intergrain meshing that's so convoluted. It really is just a setting of expectations of all the parties involved. So let's shift to your book. Uh, the name of the book, How Much Does It Cost to Make a Donut? Give us a quick backstory on the title of the book and you know what inspired you to write it. Okay. Well, I've been teaching managerial accounting for going on nine years at Queens University as an adjunct. And right in the middle of all of that, uh, I'd been teaching my class. I had a pretty, pretty good correct curriculum, but I love to bring real world examples into the class. Well, at the same time, I actually had started up a donut company with a partner and me and my partner at the time, we'd have general arguments over business decisions and no, it should be done this way, or this is, this is the right decision here. And I would take, you know, I would take my arguments into the classroom and I would take them in there very much more theoretical for a business case. And really over the course of two semesters, my whole curriculum took shift into the concept of how much does it cost to make a donut? And it was applying all of these concepts and figuring out how much it costs to make a donut. And, you know, you got 10 chapters of a textbook and we really were talking about donuts day in, day out. How, you know, how do you measure how much the overhead is? How much do you, how much do you decide um, needs to be allocated for selling in general and administrative expenses? And really my curriculum just took shape organically within the classroom Students loved talking about donuts. They did not want to talk about the examples in the book. And I just, I, I made it a, my purpose to make every concept have a donut themed example. Well, after doing it for several semesters, I had a story. I had the story of a company of a, of a, the story of a donut company. And I was able to say, this is kind of a textbook. It's kind of a storybook um, that's, you know, in the classroom, why not just take that and, you know, turn it into a book? 
So with that being said, then, was it the students that inspired you for this project to very, get it off the ground? And, and then who's the audience? I would assume they're part of it. Very much so. The, uh, the students loved it because they were, those questions, when it came to donuts, it, it could get old. And their questions would say, well, I, I love this example, but I want to start a service-based company because I'm an attorney or I, you know, I'm a graphic artist and I, I don't have any raw materials. And we quickly turned those exact same examples to where they could be applied to numerous industries. Again, general concepts across many, many industries. And once you could say raw materials doesn't affect you, but you've got to really take a look at what your direct labor costs are and what you're billing out for those hours and how you're actually making a contribution margin. The students inspired all of that conversation and those examples kind of built, built themselves out from there. Um, so taking that and writing the book, I was, you know, I had never written a book before. I thought, who's my audience? It can't just be for my classroom. And the reason is, one of the main things is, is I didn't want to be the jerk teacher that wrote a book and then made all the students buy it. I was like, I would like people that were in my classroom to enjoy the book. But what I want was for people that use accounting, whether it's a small business or at a large corporation to say, I wanted them to admit to themselves, I hate accounting. What's the bare minimum I need to know so I could at least use the accounting tools for decision-making? And therefore, my audience became anyone that doesn't like accounting that needs to use it. Oddly enough, a side audience that came from that is a lot of accountants were uh, had read the book and said, oh my God, I feel like I'm finally being heard. Like, you know, I always hear these questions because people hate accounting. And I, I've talked to several accountants that are now make their clients read it beforehand because they're like, if you want to know what I'm going to do for you, please understand what, what the disconnects are. What would you say that some of the key practices are that business owners should implement to be successful? One right off the bat is a formal budgeting process. And when I say formal, it can be as informal as you want it. I have seen companies that are 20 years old that have never done a budget. They think they know they're always going with their gut and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. The first time you do a budget, it's going to be from your gut. And it's probably based on a lot of real world experience. But understanding how all of your costs and expenses affect your revenue on how you actually generate revenue is really outlined in your budget. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how the budget is not a mathematical exercise. It's actually much more of how you build policy in your company. It really shows you how those different departments integrate with one another. And if you say you're going to sell $1.5 million worth of product, you got to make sure production's ready to make $1.5 million worth of product. And if you were too high in that and you've overproduced, you're now sitting on costs that you cannot get a return on. Now, where can aspiring business leaders or I should say business owners instead go to start learning about business? What are some of your recommendations? I mean, other than your book, what, what tools that you've used or that you've seen that could be of worth? So one of the biggest things I, I I'm gonna be honest, I still hate it to this day is networking. I, I don't like to need anything. I don't like to ask for anything. 
And in the past 10 years, I've had to resign myself is I really just love good stories. I really have a question because I really wonder what is happening with travel-based applications for your telephone, you know, like an Airbnb. And I have no need for that information. I'm just really wondering <laughs> how it affects. And I'm starting to say, you know, if I have a question on something like that, I need to find someone to ask those questions. The one thing that people don't talk about enough is entrepreneurs cannot shut up. They love to tell you, they will tell you all their secrets. They will tell you every mistake they've made. They will, they will give you advice to say, do not do these things. Make sure you do those. I really realized that that has been 10 times more um, valuable than books, programs, classes. I do believe in professional development. I do believe in finding, you know, if there is a, uh, you know, a professional development series class you can jump in on that you, um, that you do do it, you know, always learn to push yourself a little bit more, but other business leaders, real business leaders are always out there to help other business leaders. Now as a, as a reader of the book, I was entertained. I know you well, we've been friends for probably a decade now. And there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in there. When you look at accounting in general, what do you find is the the number one challenge there? And also in your book, I felt like the number one challenge for you and your business partner was just to say yes, even though all the data could point toward this is a good decision, but you couldn't get your second leg over the fence. Right. Well, so when it comes to accounting, accounting is based on organization and a simple set of rules. With that, that being said, everybody assumes that right at the end of the day, there is an answer given and it's one singular answer that's, that is the end all be all. And in certain types of accounting, when it comes to tax or financial statements, that is true. That's why people value their accountants so much because this is the way the government says we should make our financial statements for tax returns, or this is the way the SEC says we should do it for our, our financial reports. The space I play in is the managerial uh, role in managerial reporting to where I actually want financial statements where I can make decisions. I want to know how much a donut costs. I want to know that I'm charging a certain amount for a donut. And when I can figure out what the cost is, how many donuts do I need to sell just to break even? What goes into it? Do I want to count the hours that the cashier spends to make a donut? Maybe there's an argument for it. Maybe they never touch a donut. So I don't need a cashier to make a donut. I need a cashier to sell a donut. So there's all of these mini debates that go into framing what the cost of a donut is or your product, regardless of what it is. But that being said, whether it is tax-wise, whether it is financial statements, whether it is managerial accounting, people are bad at making decisions. And when I say they're bad at making decisions, they don't make bad decisions. They make no decision. They'll say, well... It looks like we could make money doing this and they do nothing. And they're like, well, let's redo the reports again. And it gives the same answer or a better answer or a worse answer. And they still do nothing. They don't, and I will tell you, making a commitment that this is a bad idea, we're not going to do it, that's doing something. But people stay in the space of indifference of just doing nothing at all. All right, let's shift to rapid fire. Some personal questions. We'll throw them in there at you. Outside of the office or wherever you're working, what keeps you moving and motivated? 
So I love the outdoors. I'm always looking for the next adventure. I love to, you know, travel out to Yosemite or to Banff or, you know, I was supposed to go to Iceland this year and that got sidetracked, but always those outside adventures to just truly disconnect from everything is a big motivator. Now, if you can pinpoint one key moment in your professional career or life that catapulted you forward, what would that be? I'm going to say getting fired. <laughs> I was at a company and I was asked to do something I wasn't comfortable with and I refused, afraid that I would lose my job. Um, I lost my job because I refused to do it. And it was one of those things that I really, I never thought would happen. And I thought that when that happens, you end up in the street and you, you know, you warm yourself in an alley around a trash can on fire. That is, that pain is what forced me to start my first business. And until that, I would have told you never start your own business. Too much risk. What is your favorite company that you work with? Um, spherical media. I mean, yes, yeah. we got it. Yeah. So we just, we've been wanting to get that confirmed. For I a wanted long it on time. the record. Now yes. we know. So I, you know, what's funny is there are times I feel that people think I, I am a covert salesperson for your team because I talk so highly of you guys. So let's just put it out there. So people know. Okay. What's on, what's on your playlist music wise, man. Um, I am a huge Beck fan. I, I listen to Beck a lot. While I wrote the book, I listened to a lot of Radiohead and this real weirdo band called um, Black Moth Super Rainbow. Lately, um, I've always kind of liked them, but I feel like I just discovered the Beastie Boys. <laughs> and or rediscovered or just discovered? No, I, like I knew all their hits, but now like I am in every album to the hidden tracks, to everything. So I'm on a really big Beastie Boy kick right now, especially after the documentary that just came out. Good stuff, Cass. You know, it was great to chat with you in this capacity. We see you all the time. We work together. We appreciate all that. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. You can visit Cass' website at casimireward.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can pick up the book, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble, among other places. And you can find out more episodes of The Hive Life under the resources tab at spiraclebuzz.com. Make sure to follow us on our social media platforms at Spiracle Media. For Tim Bear and Cass Ward, I'm Jared Latch. Thanks for listening and so long for now. You've been listening to The Hive Life, brought to you by Spiracle Media. Always remember, you can visit spiraclebuzz.com or follow us at Spiracle Media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We'll see you next time on The Hive Life.